My name is Panos. My name is Sebastian. Welcome to Curiosity. Welcome. So today we uh, we actually planned when uh, Francis was back here that we were going to do a NASA episode. Yeah, like all the, the, the cool stuff NASA is doing, what they've done perhaps in the past and what's going on. And uh, and yeah, and we've been trying to figure out a time to get Francis in here and he's just like, hey, I'm showing up on a Saturday. So you guys here this Saturday? Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> so uh, ladies and gentlemen, he's here. He's, he's back here. to attack. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, for those that have not listened to our Interstellar podcast, do it now. I do it now. Well, I rewind. It. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll wait. Yeah, not really. <laughs> um, Francis is a friend of ours from Montreal, who is a teacher uh, at L'école Polytechnique, Montreal. Mm-hmm. It's a school for engineers. Teach uh, electricity and magnetism, <laughs> and have a lot of fun. So, cool. He's so our. He's the he's the go to physics guy for us. And so. when we were thinking of doing a NASA show, it's kind of like, okay, NASA's much of space stuff. So we might as well get someone that at least has a physics background and has a space background to a certain extent. Yes, uh, my PhD was um, in uh, space exploration uh, technology development. I guess that's good enough. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so no, he's the man. He's the man. So we were planning this show, uh, and all of a sudden, something really big in the something science community huge happened, and something uh, specifically in your field, from what I understand, which is perfect, especially close to my heart. You see, I was working for um, a group of research called the Gravity, uh, the Gravity Group mm-hmm. in Australia, Perth. Cool. And basically what they do is they um, they develop uh, technology as well as uh, software to uh, to help detect the first gravitational waves. Their, their passion is gravitational waves. Cool. So I was with them for four years. Um, and you have to understand the discovery of this week, a gravitational wave is detected, was something that we... Uh, yeah, well, we should probably state that the, what what happened. Yeah, we, we kind of we're we're talking about it like we're, hey, we're, we're jumping around it. So yeah, how about you kind of give us an idea of what happened last week? Okay, well, about one point three billion years ago long time. is a long time ago. Is far away. Two black holes, uh, about twenty five to thirty times the mass of our sun, were dancing around each other and finally merged into a. Uh, like a 50-something... Was it like a, like a tango or more of like a... More like a, like a spinning around... They call it an in-spiral. So they're spinning around each other and then they get closer and closer together. And as they do that, Einstein's theory of general relativity says this should emit gravitational waves, right? Cool. Um, we've known about Einstein's theory for about 100 years now. Yeah. And really, exactly 100 years, 1916... And just now, a hundred years later, boom, we're detecting it. That's kind of cool. Okay, really, really cool. And for about a hundred years, we've been really not sure that we could ever achieve measuring these waves. We're talking about the most precise instruments ever built by man and still not good enough to detect those waves. Right. right? We can get into that, but that's, it was, it happened in um, September 2015. And then, of course, it was, Checked, yeah. verified, and then yeah. finally announced this week. Right. Awesome. I couldn't believe it when I heard this news. Yeah. Where I can't... were you? What were you doing? Okay. I was, uh, well, teaching, actually. And right. uh, <laughs> it was quite a day for me. Did someone run into your classroom and go, Francis, Francis? Actually, they did. <laughs> actually, they did. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. 
Um, so, do we want to go into how they measured it now, or what? How? Yeah, let's let's talk about let's that. Just, just talk I, about I just I don't understand why it's so is, important. Yeah, like, what I, is a gravitational honest, like, wave? Yeah. Okay. What does it mean? Yeah. How well, what it means is that we've been able to look at the universe using telescopes, either visual light or radio or X-rays or all these different um, parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. All right. But that's limited to what you can see. If there's mm-hmm. objects in the way, it's hard to see behind. Some of the waves can go through some of the matter, but to a certain extent, we're limited. We can see these things. Mm-hmm. Right. Gravitational wave astronomy is like hearing the universe. And this goes through any matter imaginable. All right. It goes through galaxies, through our planet, through stars, through any matter unimpeded, these gravitational waves. So it's like a, it's like a sonar. Just like, but it's like there's sonar and there's electromagnetic radiation and then there's gravitational waves. It's a different window into the universe, really. Cool. And so how much further can we see now or how much further will we be able to see? Well, this one is a ridiculous uh, 1.3 billion light years away. Okay. So um, your galaxy is around 100,000 light years in diameter or in, in radius, right, in size. This is not a million light years. It's a billion light years. Okay, so light years, even that is, is a hard concept to understand. So uh, First off, it's a measure of distance. Sorry. I, I, you what, know what? Sorry, what did I say? <laughs> no, no. Uh, in uh, Star Wars, too. Yeah? Parsecs. They, anyway. We- yeah. yeah. Um, I just, uh, light years sounds like it's a time. So I just, oh, like, very oh, first. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Very first is, like, it's a distance. That's true, yeah. So it is a distance. So the speed of light is, uh, correct me, if it's 350,000 kilometers per second. 300,000 kilometers per second. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 300. So three times 10 to the eight. Three and eight zeros yeah. meters per second, which is roughly 300,000 kilometers. Yeah. 300,000 kilometers per second. So if you were to go that distance, for example, it would take roughly about eight minutes to get to the sun. Right. All right. So, uh, so that gives you an idea. If you're traveling at that speed for a year, that's... Like roughly the size of the solar system all right the what what's bound oh, by the sun the is about exactly one light year yeah amazing okay hmm. um so he's talking about one point what was it 1.3 billion light years away you can't even it, like the distances you don't you can't even think about it but yeah just to give you an idea ticket to the sun is eight minutes what would you do with 1.1 billion years? <laughs> so basically, gravitational waves allows you to measure um, measure things in a completely different way. Yeah, you can uh, all of a sudden pinpoint um, these black holes or, or two black holes spinning around ships and other sources like uh, supernovas, anything with big, large masses and some asymmetrical uh, nature uh, will perturb, or is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, Disturb? Yeah. It will... Uh, yeah, it will bend space-time, this four-dimensional thing that we live in, and it will send rip. How do they know it's a black hole? Could it just not be this very large, dense planet? So you can't see it. Uh, the only thing you can actually visually see is the gravitational wave or the, the, the disturbance in the force. Or no. What you yeah. can see... Well, so how do you know what yeah. it is? Yeah, well, okay, great question. We've had so much time decades of not detecting anything we've had a lot of time to think about hmm what could it look like if it came from that source or this source or that source right so 
and, and how strong the signal might be. Sure. Right. The signal that was uh, detected, you know, this this year, I don't know how to say, yeah, uh, is strong, extremely, extremely strong, yeah. right? It's a large, large uh, amplitude relative to any other sources that it could be. So it couldn't be a planet or something small. This is two extremely large, I mean, 25 solar masses and 30 solar masses. So because it's so large, we can make the safe assumption that it has to be something like a black hole. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not only that, okay. no. Because um, the amount of mass is not... You could say, well, in our solar system, there's you know one solar mass plus all the planets together. You could look at many, many, many planets or stars and say, well, that's 25 solar masses. Yeah. The black hole is just that it's all condensed in a ridiculously small size. So right. we're talking about density an extremely solid. high gravity okay. and that's what bends space-time right right so you get those things spinning around each other it's much like i would say uh, brewing a large spoon in an ocean or in a in a, in a soup and you see these uh, little tornadoes or spirals and, right? ripples. and ripples going off in all directions that's kind of what's happening okay cool. uh, and how did we measure it Okay. So how do we how do we know what how do you measure a gravitational wave 1.1 billion light years away? All right. With LIGO. You uh you look for how it distorts the space, right? You could do it with time as well. It's a little bit trickier. We were not doing that anymore. Uh but how it distorts space and the and the the idea is gravitational waves are going through the earth and your body right now. Okay, so if you can picture this, a gravitational wave going through you, all of a sudden you feel a sort of tugging at your feet and head and you're being stretched and and, uh, and, and being crushed by the elbows, uh, I mean shoulders, so you feel slimmer. And then and then it inverts. It goes, okay, crushing and then stretching your elbows out. I mean, your, your shoulders out. So you're going fat, short to thin, tall, fat, short, thin, tall. You get this sort of... Uh, variation, right? Going this oscillation, really. Right. But it's extremely, extremely small. Right. Right? It's extremely small, even for the largest gravitational waves you get. So, what do you do? You build something really large, mm -hmm. and, and you build something that is really sensitive to length variations. Okay. Something like a laser interferometer. Yeah. You've got two, uh, it's a Michelson interferometer. You've got two arms yeah 90 degrees and you've got laser light going in in two uh similar length arms and when they're in phase it's it's a dark fringe when there's a small shift depending on the phase you get a, a bright fringe and it oscillates it measures very very tiny differences okay. from one arm to the next okay so okay. now imagine you're this short fat uh tall <laughs> yeah. what i said but it's it's the uh, it's the uh, laser arm which is affected by the gravitational wave. It's going to okay. be stretched and compressed, stretched and compressed. And so, okay. And so, how much did that gravitational wave stretch it? What was the distance of that stretch? Um, see if we can uh, understand this number. All right. Yeah. The uh, the amount it changed over the total length is a fraction, okay. and that fraction is ten to the minus twenty one. Oh, <laughs> this is like. Uh, so much smaller than the, the size of a proton. That's right. what I was just about to ask. Like, it's, it's, I think that's smaller than the molecular level. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Smaller. 10 to the minus 21 is... Uh, is so 10 to the minus 9 is newtons. newtons and we're, we're talking... talking uh, nano. Sorry, Sorry nano. nano. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now, of course, this is a ratio, all right? So it's, uh, it's a length change over the total length. So what you do, you get the total length to be really large. You build right. these 
four kilometer long optical cavities, which right, 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 right. then they'll change a little tiny bit. Yeah. But you're ultra sensitive to these tiny changes. The most precise instruments made by man. Yeah. And uh, called LIGO, right? LIGO. LIGO. And there's two of them. Laser Interferometer Gravitational uh, Observatory. Right. And there's two of them. Yeah. There's on one in Hanford the and one in um, uh, Louisiana. I think that's right, yeah. And it was my understanding that they, they both discovered or they both felt that shift. Yeah. So Milliseconds later, you know, Whatever. like at a yeah. very short... Uh, well, isn't that actually a great thing that there's more than one? Because I know a lot of scientific uh, reproducibility is a real big issue. You would need more than you would one. You need more than one. Yeah. To feel kinda, both at the same time. You can reassure yourself that it wasn't just some kind of glitch. Yeah. Obviously, it would have been very strange if only one of the detectors mm. saw this. And they yeah. So, my, so, do we have any way of observing anything in between? Uh, so, like, I'm thinking of how far these gravitational waves are. Um, or the how far they came from, you mean? Uh, yeah. Because they travel at light speed through the universe. And Sorry, yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking of it more as like we're, we're going to be using these gravitational waves, I'm assuming, to be able to uh, see into beyond. But I feel like there's, is there not like a, a amount of space in between that we're not measuring or that we don't know about? The Well, here's what I think when you say something like that. I'm, uh, what space are we not aware of or what space can't we see? And maybe you want to talk about the observable universe. Mm -hmm. um, if we, you know, point... And look in any direction. We can see 13.7 billion years uh, or light years in, in, sure. in the direction. So light coming from the edge of the universe, the observable universe is 13.7 okay. or more because it's, it's, it's expanding. Whatever is beyond that simply has not had time to reach us. Okay. So, oh. <laughs> so there's part of the universe that maybe we haven't mapped. It gets uh, into cosmology. It gets a little bit. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's another podcast. That's a whole um, other podcast. Um, right. So, was there anything else you want to you want to inform us about? Because it's a really cool thing that we, yeah. we're able to like see or sorry hear the universe now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so. Wait, what what will the map look like once we get the gravitational? Like, once you start mapping gravitational waves, because I'm do, I'm doing something like pretty stupid here. I'm thinking like Batman. You know, when he's he's got his little sonar and he's he's looking in sound. Yep. And and obviously we have a whole bunch of like we have millions of pictures of space now but they're light based, you know, Hubble telescopes and there's you can see stars and whatnot. So what does a gravitational wave map look like? Well, I'm not sure you want to talk about a a real map of where things are, but okay. the gravitational wave once you can pinpoint where it comes from, okay, is going to is going to tell you where to for example in this case where a source of two black holes are, okay. all right? So black holes is something, well, they're black. You can't see them. Right. So it doesn't matter how good we get at looking into the universe with electromagnetic spectrum and telescopes, right. even sonar, you <laughs> can't see it. What you can see about uh, around black holes are, you know, stars infalling in the black hole, but the black hole itself, observing it, mm -hmm. gravitational waves is just, is probably so, our... So could you see something like Pluto, like the little guy? No, Something very small, because no, obviously it, its gravitational relevance yeah, is, is almost doesn't really perturb you know? space-time enough to, to get yeah. to see it. So, so this kind of method would be great for seeing very large, dense objects, or or uh, pinpointing where a supernova. Uh, you know, if a supernova happens in our galaxy or something, we which is when a star explodes. Yeah, yeah. we could get the gravitational waves 
at the speed of light coming our way before much of anything else comes our way. And then we could point our, you know, this sort of multi-messenger astronomy idea where, okay, gravitational waves come in. Okay, let's point our telescopes this way. Boom. Then we see the light show. Mm. Okay. Oh, I see. Because, yeah, because I would imagine that this is the only way that we can measure black holes. Pretty as, much. Yeah, as so far as like, I can say. Yeah. So, like, yeah. for, for me, the, the biggest take-home message is being able to measure gravitational waves now now allows us to measure black holes. Yeah, to pinpoint locations of black holes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to add? Well, I mean, it's just getting started, right? right. Uh, this is a first detection. There's a rumor. There might have been another one. It's when we start, you know, building more detectors and uh, and uh, just listen for longer that we'll get to see some of the major. Uh, any 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 predictions, Francis? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Come on. Uh... All right. Yeah. Sure. There's. It's not so much of a prediction, but it's just a. I'm happy to announce. You know. Um, the, there was already this idea of a project, like what's a better detector for gravitational waves after we're done trying on Earth? Yeah, There's this space uh, gravitational wave detector, ELISA. ELISA. Yeah, yeah, so it's a space sort of, uh, same idea, but in yeah. space. What's the advantage? No seismic noise. A kangaroo jumping around won't make a disturbance. Yeah. A truck going around, there's just less noise to deal with, so you're higher sensitivity and you can just, it's easier to hear. Yeah. And you can make it really long, you know, millions of kilometers apart instead of just four kilometers four apart. Miles, instead. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's coming in 2030. So I mean, 2030, really? 2030. Wow. No, that's actually not too far away. There's, uh, you know, yeah. probably, they, they say 2030, and then of course things will take a bit longer. But that's now nice. there might be more, I don't know. Well, they said that it would take forever to, to measure gravitational waves before we did. They say it wouldn't happen. And here we are. 2016. Mm. So we're, since we're in, you know, in the universe in space, I mean, we got to talk about planets. Yeah. Right? Uh, so technically, planet is defined as a celestial body moving in an elliptical orbit around a star. Okay. Uh, and I found it really interesting that, like, this this is a definition. And I know that we there was some uh, con contesting that uh pluto is and then isn't and then ah, is and then isn't um and i was looking at you know definitions of planets because yeah what yeah. you know what what defines a planet why isn't pluto uh, a planet what i found more interesting than anything else is that uh the governing bodies in in this type of thing uh the international astronomical astronomical union um didn't actually have a definition that's so correct when? 2006 2006 so we only we've only technically known what a planet is since well, 2006. We we, yeah. we okay. haven't had to because we didn't have the instruments that were or, uh, good enough to actually measure to start deciphering between <laughs> the various. Okay, exactly. Um, and of course, the Greeks observed the sky thousands of years ago. Yes, and the term planet from comes from the Greek planetes, oh. which means wanderers. Oh. I'd like to weigh in here, unless you were going to mention this, but. Uh, what the, what you look at in the sky and you see these stars is you're looking at a map which seems to move, right? It's actually the Earth moving, but you see a map of of stars moving together. Right. And then, then you make up constellations. You always see this, you know, Orion or this uh, serpent or dragon or thing in the sky. Sure. These wanderers, these planetes, they, they appear at different locations w with time. So, oh, next month. This appears at a different location. It wasn't there before. It seems to be moving and moving and moving. And so they distinguished it from from the stars. And that's why they call it a wanderer. Oh, I see. I see. Yes, of course. Okay. So because of, um, like I said, because of 
Pluto and actually discovering celestial bodies past Pluto. Mm-hmm. Um, the IAU, um, again, the International Astronomical Union, had to state a definition for what okay. a planet is. All right. uh, and there's three parts to it. Okay. Uh, that it is in orbit around the sun. Fair enough. Makes sense. Uh, has sufficient mass to assume hydrostatic equilibrium. What, uh, what does that mean? Basically, it's big enough to make it almost round. Okay. Um, and the third one has, has cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. So that one's kind of a little bit harder to explain. Uh, basically, it means becoming gravitationally dominant. So there's no other bodies around it that are affecting um, that are affecting its gravity. So it's not having any other gravitational influence. Um, with the exception of the sun? Oh, with the exception of the sun. Um, so basically, is Pluto's an example of this um, in that the gravitational pull of uh, Neptune will affect how Pluto is doing its orbit. Um, Pluto will actually come into the in and out of the orbit of Neptune. And that's why it's not defined as a planet. Um, I'd like to bit. maybe weigh in here because yeah, yeah, yeah. it is a bit tricky, but I think one of the major reasons why Pluto was demoted as a planet is because of its, uh, its you know, you want to call it a moon. It's a moon... Uh, Charon or Sharon, or however that's pronounced, right, yeah. is roughly the same size as Pluto. Mm-hmm. And, and so, of course, Pluto is very much affected by Charon. They're, they're basically spinning around each other, much like these two black holes that were just detected. Were right? So it is affected, obviously, by um, Neptune and other large gas giants, yeah. probably even Jupiter. Yeah. But that in itself wouldn't demote you as a, as a planet because... Yeah. Some every planet affects one other planets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every yeah. Yeah, it's just that in its neighborhood, yeah. in its close neighborhood, there's not another object which will greatly affect the orbit around the sun of that planet. Okay. Cool. Um, and yeah, and there's actually something to be called Plutoed. Pluto. Uh, a, a term. Oh. Yeah. It uh, was coined in the aftermath of, again, uh, Pluto That's being really demuted. That's really just adding demoted. salt to the wound. Uh, it just feels so Plutoed right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, defined wow. as to demote or devalue someone or something as happened to the former planet. Um, but there has more recently been uh, another yes, planet. There's a, for, a ninth for planet. Pluto losing its planetary. There is a new planet, Planet Nine. Uh, planet X. You've probably already heard of it. Um, it's a really, really original name. Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> Planet X. Uh, so Michael Brown was the gentleman responsible for uh, demoting Pluto. He had proven, uh, you know, I guess after going through the rules and regulations of what is consistent of a real planet, uh, he was responsible for this. And uh, as a result, maybe he felt bad, but mm. uh, he's been working at Caltech, and they uh, have proposed... The uh, they've been doing simulations, trying to understand how the orbits um, of Neptune and Uranus um, are being affected, and they've brought forth some evidence that there should be another planet um, in 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 the near vicinity affecting their orbits. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? I thought it was um, six other bodies, not quite the planets, just other bodies out. Mm farther out okay. that would come in at some point in their orbit close to the sun. Okay. And so these six bodies, and I have no idea what their names are, not those planets, 
seem to be really greatly affected by this invisible actor. Oh, okay. Right? This, if you look at the model of how things should move, and right. you consider these six bodies, uh, there seemed to be something missing, which was why they believe, oh, there must be this big planet. Right. And, and we said big planet. In the, it was it's supposed to be the size of about Neptune or a little larger, which is, again, quite big. And uh, according to their calculations, it it is going around the sun, of course, but uh, it takes it would take roughly about fifteen thousand years for it to have successfully done uh, one, one rotation or one yeah. year. Yeah, one was that one year technically. Well, yeah, that's that's one way to put it. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. So one sol- planet one X, planetary year. One planet, yeah. Planet X year is is fifteen thousand Earth years. Yeah. Years. Um, and I think, if, as I recall, Neptune was about one hundred and sixty-five. Um, so that just gives you an idea of how far uh, it's going. So anyway, um, so this this was actually just recently in the news, probably a few weeks ago. And because of their calculations and their simulations, they're really, really strongly believe that this this is somewhere, and it's and they're going to. I think I believe they said within the next five years, uh, they're now going to start pointing our telescopes in where they think it is. Uh, so it's very possible in the next, the near future, uh, Planet X is given some new name, and uh, and we have visual confirmation. So right now we have theoretical type, mm-hmm. confir- not confirmation, but plausibility. Um, but it's like they can see the effects of it, but they can't see it yet. Exactly. That's exactly. It. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so what about Pluto? Uh, Pluto has been demoted uh, to a dwarf planet. Um, yeah. So a dwarf planet is, as as we were talking about planets in general, there are the three characteristics. Right. Um, dwarf planets only suffice or uh, only satisfy two of them. Okay. So they are big enough. Uh, sorry, they're they're affected by the gravity of the sun. They're big enough to be sphere, like round dish. Okay. Um, but they are. Um, it's the neighboring thing. It's the neighboring thing. Right. Um. So, so yeah. So, a couple of them in this subcategory of dwarf planets: uh, Pluto, Homea, Makimaki. 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 <laughs> or make make. I, make I make. Makimaki Maki just no, sounds, sounds way so better. much better. And uh, Eris. E R I S. Sounds uh, Greek again. Yeah, it's definitely somehow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, so it's sad that you know we don't have nine planets anymore. We only have eight, but it's coming. It's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Yeah. One, there's uh, one thing that I always you know try to distinguish between a, yeah. a planet and an asteroid or a comet, and I think that's one of those things in like grade nine, ten that I completely forgot. Um, so it might be interesting to to know what the difference is there uh, before talking about the next one. It's a good idea. Well, uh, has to do with where you are in the solar system. Your, your planets, your, your solid planets are closer to the sun. Your gas giant planets are just a bit further out. This planet X. Planet X. Kind of being in between with uh, planet region, asteroid belt, and, and beyond. And your comets are really the, uh, the, some of the farthest objects you get. So out in the real cold regions of the solar system. And... They're large chunks of ice. So, like, by ice, I mean, like, water-based? I believe... Well, okay. This Rosetta Stone mission, as we'll talk about soon, gives yeah. evidence of water ice. Water ice. Mm. Right? So this this can or could maybe answer some of the questions like, 
where do the oceans come from? Where does our atmosphere come from? Or even where did the life, how did life start on Earth? Comets are probably an area of interest in that, in the way that they could answer some of those questions, maybe. Of course, it's really hard to uh, get information from a comet, and uh, this Rosetta Stone is, is one of those missions where we've, we've sensed something to do something incredible and get some of that information. Um, maybe another word on what's an asteroid, what's a comet. Yeah, how do you, how, yeah. what's the distinction? Okay, I think we're comparing very similar things, right? Okay. So there are large rocks in space floating around. Yeah, some have other things on them like yeah this thing does that this thing does this yeah. the asteroids are large chunks of rocks and there's this asteroid belt between mars and uh, jupiter and then there's an asteroid belt around where pluto is mm-hmm. all right and these these they, they sort of stay within that bound unless they knock each other and then one flies in towards the, the sun yeah. or kills us one of the two mm. Uh, the comet, however, uh, really originates from farther out in, in the uh, solar system. Okay. Was formed around the same time as our sun, our uh, our planets, the asteroids as well. Right? Mm-hmm. But it was formed out there, and it they sometimes have an, an orbit which takes them every hundred years or so, every thousand years or so, close uh, like a flyby near the sun, and then back out. So. Comet Halley, for example, which comes in every 75, 76 years, mm-hmm. last seen in 1986, I believe, um, was flying really close to the Earth. I think we crossed the, the path of its tail, right? and, and that's a comet. So it comes in and then goes right back out to that region. Okay. So, so do comets, uh, this might be a stupid question, but do comets have some sort of elliptical orbit then? Yes, yes, they do very much, and uh, an exaggerated one, I'd say. Okay, yeah. so it's it's as opposed to like a the sun. Yeah, and it the closest distance to the sun can be really close. It doesn't it doesn't burn up or it doesn't. Oh yes, okay. uh, so comets can and do die, and they uh, they sort oh. of uh, explode. What what happens is the um, of course the ice and and the gases and the volatile light elements of the comet uh, they just sort of jet out right okay. as you get close to the sun. And that's why you see a tail, like the big comet tail. Right. And if you get close enough, well, that just it's shoot. So, the, so the comet tail is is the remnants of it of it melting. It, it's it's or... like um, how would you say, like a dry ice? If you were holding right. it in your hand and you could cool. see, you know, all of the gas coming off of it and it slowly right. decreases in no. evaporating, uh, ejecting, <laughs> sort yeah. of speed. Yeah. Oh, cool. So the comet does that. And so compare okay. that to an asteroid. Okay, uh, the asteroid is. Uh, a different rock composition, okay. very similar maybe to uh, to the Mars, uh, the Earth, and the, the other solid planets, yeah. and uh, wouldn't contain as much uh, light elements and uh, water, water ice. Is it possible to land on one and infuse a nuclear bomb, <laughs> potentially saving the Earth? I'll answer the first part. It is possible to land on an asteroid. It has been done. On Eros, E-R-O-S. And this is why the distinction I had to make earlier. Yeah. And not on a comet. So we've landed on moons. Okay. We've landed on planets, including Venus, Mars. We'll talk about Mars a little bit later. We will. Good. Um, but as on a comet, that's it's much trickier. Okay. Because they only come in every so often. Right. 
Uh, and uh, it's just a large galactic bullet speeding really fast, and you, it's just tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, the curiosity I have is, um, is it the actual composition of the comet that makes it difficult to land on, or is it uh, some sort of like, uh, I, I imagine like a comet rotating and for some reason an asteroid not rotating. I know that's probably completely wrong, but like... Really? I couldn't tell you if it's wrong the, the about rotating or not. Yeah. I, I would imagine I would both of them might, yeah. yeah, and and I would say, for both reasons, it's difficult. One being the composition and and the shape structure of the, uh, of the comet. Right. Uh, as we'll see with Rosetta Stone, it was an issue, um, but that doesn't mean it's easier on an asteroid. That they might also have funny shapes. Yeah, it's just that you can see them, so okay. you can plan ahead of time. Whereas the comet, um, well, mapping it requires getting close to it, and that's a tricky thing in okay. itself. Okay. So there's there's a couple of a lot of things I couldn't answer, but yeah, no, it's like like I said, the the thing I see as a comet is like you're trying to land on something that's on fire, and that's hard, and then like an, <laughs> it's and, not a shooting star. I are shooting anyways. That's another um, very slow moving in the sky shooting star, large. Right. Yeah, yeah. When it comes close. Uh, so what did they do with Rosetta Stone? Yeah, what's Rosetta Stone like, all about then? So yeah. Well, that's a. 10-year adventure so that's there's a bit of a story behind all that um originally it was scheduled to 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 launch a um uh, a probe and a lander attached to the probe the rosetta the rosetta mission with uh with a, a lander attached to it to land to go Catch and orbit uh, around the comet, so catch a comet and, and sort of orbit around it, okay. and then send a lander onto the comet, which would be a first in uh, achievements. Right. Right? How far a distance was this from the Earth? Um, Where was this orbit happening? Well, you know it, it originates from really far out in space, but then it's it's actually flying by uh, all of the solid planets and getting really close to the sun. So at at some point, it's relatively close. Okay. Yeah, as close, say, as other planets are. Too. Okay, alright. But uh, you had to you had to reach the path of that comet mm-hmm. and, and the speed of it, so you want to be able to follow it, and and that took some uh, some ingenious calculations, right. some really cool flight plans and maneuvers. Mm-hmm. So check this out. Uh, their plans changed, but eventually in two thousand and four. They they launched this uh, Ariane five um, shuttle, okay. which which uh, you know which brought the Rosetta um, probe out in space, okay. detached, and then it did a a small slingshot effect around the Earth, mm-hmm. out to uh, an asteroid, mm-hmm. and flew by, took pictures, whatever it came uh, came around uh, Mars for another slingshot effect. Okay. And then, you know, just hold on, all right? The story's like not over. Yeah. <laughs> You're gathering speed, all right? You're using the gravitational pull of these planets and yeah. slingshotting, sling shooting around, yeah. right? A second time around the Earth, <laughs> then out to another asteroid for another look around, and a third last time around the Earth, wow. gathering more and more speed, and then finally going out to meet, all right? Coinciding with the orbit of this uh 67p uh oh dear what's the name of this uh it's got a, I, I wrote it down because it's kind of a name it's the shuryumov gerasimenko uh, how did you not remember that come on 
How did I not remember? <laughs> what was it? Hold on, give us that name again. Oh man! All right, this comment is called 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko, after the people that have played a role in, in finding it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's so. That's what you had to do. You had to slingshot, gather speed. So this may be an impossible question for you to answer, but how much speed do you acquire every time you do a slingshot? Yeah, this is impossible for me to answer, <laughs> <laughs> and not impossible. It's just. Well, very um, good. I have good. not linked, looked into it okay. that much. Does the mm -hmm. speed, you know, increase? I don't know, twofold, tenfold, a uh, hundredfold. I imagine. Uh, well, I imagine you get a pretty good acceleration boost from, uh, or you know, it's a good trick. Sure. Well, maybe this is um, my question for you: is is it because where we were trying to get to was so far away, or because we needed that much of an impact to actually like land on the asteroid? I'd say. Um, Again, it's a slightly complicated flight plan. Mm -hmm. So the all of the rationale behind it is is something I'd, I'd love to have an interview with these people to see mm -hmm. what they were thinking of. Uh, the obvious <laughs> thing is it worked. Yeah, um, thankfully. So, <laughs> um, I imagine it's um, reducing cost of getting something that fast and yeah. in that location. But well, the timing has to be right. The directions, of course, you can correct along the way. And of course, getting close to the comet, they actually had to do to use a braking. Uh, maneuver sure, yeah. to slow down and get close to it and just perfectly right and then orbit around it yeah. right? and then you know free boosters in space yeah, just just start boosters. slingshotting everywhere you want well i don't know why you wouldn't you know use what you can you're out in space well, yeah. all you have is fuel <laughs> it's like you there's no gas stations out and yeah i'm, you know. I'm sure you're using all the tricks in the book yeah, to get exactly. these achievements i mean it's the first First time ever landing on a comet, and and that was achieved in uh, November, I think, two thousand fourteen. So, uh, ten years later, you're after these, uh, you know, flybys of Earth and Mars, and and hibernation stages where it's doing nothing because there's nothing to do. Right. Then you uh, you're you're out of hibernation in about. Uh, January 2014, getting close to that comet, and then, all right, let's start moving and adjusting, uh, getting close to it, and then, all right, we need to figure out on this two potatoes shaped connected by something in the middle. It's a weirdly shaped comet. Yeah. Where do you land a probe? And you've got about two weeks window to analyze data from this Rosetta probe. All right, all right guys, uh, where are we going to land this thing, and how do we do this? It's, mm. it's just... And so what information did we get from it? And like, or why did we do it? Why did we do it? And what do we know now from it? Okay. Well, as I said, it's, it's something that was built. The, the, the comets are built in this uh, region of our solar system, this really cold region, but they were built, they were built, they were formed about the same time as the sun and the earth. And so they do contain some of the information about our original cloud where we all came in uh, from in the solar system. The constituents, the constituents, the elements, that, the constitution, <laughs> the constitution yeah, yeah, yeah. of of our bodies, of our planets, of everything around us. Where does it all come from? Uh, what's it made of? It, it carries some of the mysteries, right? It might answer some of the mysteries of our star formation, planetary formation. It might even explain how life originated on Earth. We think panspermia is an idea where comets or other rocks carry life you know in form of bacteria or whatever and they land on a planet and then oh yeah all of a sudden there's humanity yeah but then things like the lighter elements the volatile elements of comets 
could be responsible for our atmosphere, the uh, water ice for our oceans, and so on and so forth. So you've got a lot of really cool questions that you can start tackling if you get more information from your comets. So did they just do some sort of sampling of what was on there? Many, many many experiments. They had uh, about 11 experiments done from the lander, about 10 different machines and experiments done from the from the probe orbiting around the comet, including reading uh, uh, magnetic readings to see, all right, do comets in, inherently have large magnetic fields? Does that play a role in how planets form or how uh, solar systems are formed? Not really. What they, they found on this one is there's hardly any or any at all uh, magnetic field coming from the... Uh, the comet itself so yeah. gravity would be the main yeah. reason the main yeah. mechanism behind the formation and then you're looking at okay the vapor coming off the comet is is just like water vapor yeah so they, they were able to, to identify that as well as other compositions co2 and other elements cyanide actually um, but the the uh, the water vapor and i would need to look into this more has a slightly different flavor than the, the water in our oceans. And so questions to be asked about this. I know there's going to be... Cool. Yeah, so I guess they're, they're really at the, the beginning of understanding what... Very much. And, you know, analysis of chemical composition can take a really long time um, just because if you're looking at a lot of things that are very similar, um, it, yeah, it can take a lot of time to be able to, like, basically separate out everything you can. Um the example I'll give is trying to uh, separate salt and pepper. If you have salt and pepper together, um, you imagine mixed, or yeah, you mixed salt and pepper together. The solution or uh, no, just even salt and pepper, just as is, uh, okay. just to understand how difficult it can be at times to just go like grain by grain, going like, okay, we're gonna take like this little sliver off and then we'll separate here. Um, it's pretty difficult. Okay, I was making the joke earlier that there are no uh, fueling stations. Yeah, fueling in, uh, stations. Well. Uh, who needs fuel? Um, we are truly at the advent of space exploration now because of one SpaceX. man, one man, one man, uh, Elon Musk, the gentleman who started SpaceX in I think it was two thousand two, two thousand three, and uh, he has a vivid dream, uh, an ambition of being a multi-planetary civilization. Uh, he truly believes that within the not maybe not the near future but within the future we will be living on mars hmm. and i think he even goes as far as to say that this is our only solution if we're going to be a if we're going to survive yeah species uh he has certain uh you know pessimistic views about the potential survival of the human race but that's another you know um but anyway so what he did about it was very simple he created a company uh which made rockets but not just any type of rockets. What they successfully did, actually very uh, recently, so as December 21st, so about two, three months ago, um, they launched the Falcon 9 rockets uh, from Cape Canaveral, and it went into orbit. It actually released, I believe it was exactly 11 orbits, or sorry, 11 satellites for a certain communication company. And normally what happens is that then the rocket is kind of, it goes back towards Earth and it will land either in the ocean or whatnot uh, or wherever it is safe to do so. 
What's so special about their rockets is that the the rocket was able to reland exactly where it had left off in Cape Canaveral, vertically, ready to be refueled and refired again the next day. And what's the the there's like an incredible price difference. In well, this. so this is why he is making it almost an economically affordable to go into space now to 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 reset up a new rocket to build everything else every time you shoot one of these guys up it's 45 million dollars yeah he has turned it into a two hundred thousand dollar affair well yeah you build it and then you refuel it so as opposed to he, you you yeah you've got a you've got a bus you've got a yeah a, you've got a bus straight to the orbit you know and all you have to do is refuel it yeah can you imagine taking an airplane and every time you take an airplane they have to destroy the airplane well, that's exactly right yeah where the airplane never actually really lands it just crashes <laughs> and you jump out before it does it yeah um and so this is what they have successfully accomplished is is orbital flight and then re-landing and and capable of, of refueling and this is it's just a phenomenal feat of engineering uh, if you haven't seen the videos you should go to youtube and type in spacex landing uh, and you will see it it's it's just unbelievably cool and and so we were just kind of hinting at um you know space flight well virgin uh, virgin music virgin uh, airlines, air, airlines uh, uh richard branson richard branson who's the man behind it all is also very much in favor of space flight um but on a tourist side so he has uh they've started a, a company called um virgin galactic and they I, I believe that, that the price tag for a ticket in an orbital flight just to kind of go around the earth and and you kind of get a you know a little tour and a little scenery is $250,000. Not bad. Uh well, I mean it's it's not completely It's to go nowhere cuz you you're going back. Technically you're going back. yeah, it's Yeah. This but, was an expensive day. You know what? Obviously for 99% of the population it's beyond our means, but it's really not that expensive when you think about it. It's a $200,000 Price there, you're catering to a different crowd. You're t- yeah, you are catering to a different crowd. Well, wasn't there like a whole bunch of people that wanted to like have already paid, prepaid oh, their ticket? It's already been prepaid. Yeah, the first few flights have already been completely paid off. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 from what I understand, there have been significant delays. Yeah. Uh, you, it's something you don't want to get wrong. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> well, can you argue that the only like actual space vacation that we have right now? available to us are the people that are going to the international space station i don't know if i want to call it a vague <laughs> yeah it's but like yeah a, desti- like a destination wheel that goes up and then goes back down yeah because i'm just thinking of like you know virgin sending people out to space it's like oh yeah it's a little tour but i guess the only so place they, yeah they don't they don't stop at the international space station to have cu- you know a cup of coffee or, or chill out that might uh, cost extra <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, no. It, this truly is just a, uh, imagine it like a helicopter ride type thing. You are going mm-hmm. into orbit um, and uh, and you come back down. It's yeah. not, um, yeah. I don't know exactly how long the flight is. Probably not too long, but, you know, hopefully long enough to merit the $200,000 price tag. <laughs> But um, but I know you also looked into uh, the International Space Station and, and the incredible feat that that was because it took something like 10 years to put it all together and they did it all yeah, in Lego pieces. It was 12, 12 years. It took 40 different flights 
um, or 40 different uh, takeoffs. And uh, it is an unbelievable feat of engineering. So they have uh, the, the exact number of pieces is more than 40. So it took 40, sh- 40 shuttles to get up there. Uh, but you have to imagine this took over 12 to 13 years to build. So it's almost like you're building this kind of Lego set. Um, and a lot of these pieces are you know, 40, 50, 60 tons. You can't bring them all at once. So you have to do it in pieces. And then you have to start building things while orbiting the Earth in space. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit tricky, uh, but absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and it's absolutely massive. So do you know how big, gentlemen, I guess, how big is the space station? No, I imagine the solar panels make it make most of the length or size. That's true. The solar panels do take a lot of space. I'm just going to say Africa. <laughs> it's uh well in in uh, because it's Super Bowl time, it's it's the size of a football field. Okay. <laughs> You're like, "Wait a minute. I thought it was going to be bigger than that." Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th- I thought I'd, I thought I'd go for gold. Africa. Yeah, you're going for gold. That's that's true. No, so it's about Death including. Star is what we're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the Death Star. So including uh, including the end zones, it's uh, it's about the size of a football field. Okay. And a lot of that, as you alluded to, is um, is the result of the solar rays, so the solar panels, and that measures uh, seventy three meters long, and they're just they're absolutely massive as well. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so composed or composing this, this international space station, 52 different computers. Okay. And this is actually really interesting. There's not that much code. It would sound like it, but there's 1.5 million lines of code. Okay. And that sounds like a lot. So if you ever, if you ever looked at them, you know, well, the matrix is like vertical code, which is wrong. But if you ever look at a programmer working at his desk, every time he hits enter or space, it goes down. And that's a new line of code. And, and to, for the space station, that's 1.5 million. Hmm. And you'd think, wow, that's a lot. But actually, 1.5 million isn't very much at all. So to give you an example, um, like Windows, uh, Windows 7 is 40 million. Oh. Okay. Um, a car, which is actually this is really, really, really surprising. Your average, whatever, uh, Honda Civic or well, I mean, let's maybe a little more sophisticated. Let's say like a BMW has 50 million lines of code. Hmm. 50 million lines of code. So the space station's running on you know one fiftieth of of your of your BMW. Um, so anyway, really, really, really impressive because you have to remember this is also 10, 15 years ago, and they would have obviously had to start prepping and designing it 20 years ago. Yeah. So 20 years ago, you're not foreseeing 50 million lines of code, and a lot of the stuff you're doing is, you know. Uh, well, I'm just trying to think of, like, what we had in 1995. I feel like that was... I, I would have to look this up, but I feel like that's when they came out with a CD Walkman. <laughs> you know, like... Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Like, you can imagine that you're trying to design things. I was going to ask, how many lines of code in a Nintendo game? You know? um, well, actually, hold on. I've got it up. Uh, so, in, an, in a in a, an iPhone app, it's I think it's 4,000. Well, have a look. But in the meantime, I, I kind of wonder about why 1.5 million lines of code. And does it have anything to do with simplifying the uh, the command so that you're um, you know using less resources well that's exactly it you don't want the blue screen of death so i i don't want to say for certain 
uh, because I don't know. But I would I would guess that all the programs that they have running are are self sufficient programs, right? There isn't like a unified OS that has has to deal with all these tasks. Far more reliable to have multiple computers dealing with these independent tasks. And if something goes wrong, you can deal with it, as opposed to having to look through 50 million lines of code. That becomes a problem, right? right. Any idea if, if we know the language they use? Oh, that's a great question. I have absolutely no idea. Well, you can be guaranteed that it's all in Linux. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I also forgot to say, the in terms of living space or kind of movable area space uh, in the space in the international space station it's equivalent to a, a boeing 7 787 hmm. so yeah. that's you know you take out all the seats you take out everything else and that's kind of the space you have to to run around and and whatnot yeah and just um, to give you an idea the in 1996 the nintendo 64 came out Okay. Um, so, like, I, and that was like you know gaming at its best. Yeah, uh, and well. those games weren't more than about one meg. So really? yeah, there's maybe a few megs, but like yeah, I know. So the SpaceX uh, expedition or expedition uh, business that Elon Musk is yeah. is actually doing is that to provide he also supplies. A, he has a contract. Yeah. Um, so like, what do you need in like how do you get all of the things that you need to live? On the uh, on the exactly. International Space well, Station. So this is how Elon Musk is able to pay for what he does. Uh, he has a contract with NASA now, and he is responsible for refueling the International Space Station. Hmm. Uh, he also probably has a lot of contracts with uh, communication companies. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know, while well, you're going let's, up, let's remember that Elon Musk started off. Uh, his whole empire started off by this brilliant move to create PayPal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's what made the money. He could have then took that money and just live very comfortably for the rest of the life sorry yes then i i misspoke uh, it, the the origin of the capital wasn't from this it's how it's going to sustain itself how is spacex staying alive yeah and that's how they're staying alive yeah 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 but yeah and refueling and and so the international station um has a great method so it doesn't it doesn't bring up air Every you know six months. That would just be fun. Can um, you imagine transporting uh, compressed oxygen? Yeah, it just like let me just bring a rocket and a bunch of fuel and bring that up. Like, yeah, it's, it's not reasonable. Not a good idea. And so if if you guys have seen or read The Martian, uh, with Matt uh, Matt Damon, Matt Damon, it was actually a good movie. I I read the book. The book was obviously you know in usual is is better because it actually gets nerdier and a lot of the scientific explanations go into really depth oh, it's it. you should read it and it's, it's hilarious the book is actually so much funnier than the movie too you know the movie was funny it was funny but they didn't play on his humor as much as um and so and so anyway so in the book and in the movie if you see you know he's running out of oxygen he needs to figure it out a way and he uses uh electrolysis so uh, it's about uh using uh electrical current to split water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen gas, mm-hmm. um, and so he does this in, in you know while he's stuck on on Mars, and this is exactly the method they use on the International Space Station to uh, to acquire the oxygen they need. So yes, there is a refueling a refueling station that brings a lot of water mm-hmm. uh, up, but they convert that water into oxygen as they need it, um, and of course I'm sure they they bring out the uh, the terrible 
vacuum dried packets of tang of, of tang and and craft dinner and uh yeah. whatever else you know whatever supplements um but i wonder i wonder what their uh, like most sought after thing is you know like do, do they really want mangoes or something uh, yeah you, you wonder know? probably yeah that'd be a great question to ask yeah. uh yeah uh so Hatfield. it made me start to think about like what what you need on a planet or what you need to actually live um i know that sounds like a really broad question um but more so from uh mars because right. we are looking into mars and seeing if that's it's a viability there are missions planning to to habitat mars yeah well habitability is is one of these like kind of hard terms to uh well it's two distinctions right it's like what can live on mars or can humans live on mars right uh which is really different i mean there are some plants that uh that only need 0.15 percent oxygen Okay. And they can survive. Um, humans uh, need about 20% in their atmosphere okay. uh, to survive. So uh, habitability is, is one of these things that uh, that I think is, is important to distinguish because we're going to be talking about uh, life on Mars. Um, so life, not necessarily us. Um, okay. So there are a couple conditions you have to satisfy to be considered habitable as a planet. Yeah. Uh, and these planets that have this are called Goldilocks planets. Right. Uh, if you guys will remember. Not too warm. Not too cold. Just We're at a nice place. For all the uh, Star Trek geeks out there, these are called M-class planets. Uh, Thought I should add that in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, so a couple criteria to be a Goldilocks planet. Uh, it has to be near enough to a star to get warmth, but not too far to be too burned. Uh, like too close? Uh, too close, sorry, to be yeah. burned. Right. Um, so the idea being if you're too close to the sun, you're going to get a lot of sunburns. Mm-hmm. Thinking Mercury. Yeah, yeah. Mercury, yeah. Um, they need to be made out of rock uh, okay. because you need to be able to step on to <laughs> something. I feel like um, these are really low standards. <laughs> but, like, it, it kind of it rules out yeah. some planets, I right? So, it, like, I Jupiter, it, yeah. Saturn, Uranus, you can't, you can't okay. habitate them. However, you could think about the moons around Jupiter, which True. are solid. Uh, they have to be big enough to have a molten core um, because we get a lot of our geothermal energy and raw uh, materials from the core. Of... I'd say probably also. Uh, another thing happening with a molten core like uh, on Earth is the, uh, well, the Earth's magnetic field yeah. generated by the spinning core. That is a big one, I think, in humans or any other life forms uh, surviving is... Protection from cosmic rays, gamma rays, and then mm-hmm. solar winds, and that comes from uh, your magnetic field. It also comes from the the fourth criteria, which is an atmosphere. Ah, there you go. Um, yeah. Which is which is you know holds all of the carbon dioxide and holds other gases in. Right. Uh, also, the atmosphere makes it so if the if you are too close to the sun, that maybe you can get some protection. Right. Uh, and the last one is a habitable zone, um, where temperature is ideal for water, because mm-hmm. you kind of. T- in all of the life forms that we know of, uh, you need water to sustain them. So essentially what you're saying is that you need a planet within the temperature ranges of like 5 to 70 degrees or something. Do you I mean, live after- in Ottawa? <laughs> it, uh, sorry, no, but I, mean- I had to make the joke. Uh, minus, minus 15 to 115 is what they say. Minus 15 to 115. Well, at 115 everything's boiling off, isn't it? Yeah, but there are creatures... Uh, yeah, they're extremophiles. 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 Thank you. Yeah. 
One in particular lives to ridiculously cold temperatures to very, very high. Lives I, would, I would agree with you, except, I mean, I think when you think of extremophiles, it is an ecosystem. So for them to survive, you may need another species or, you know, whether it be plants or something else that can't survive under those types of conditions, uh, permitting them to do so. Uh, so, yeah, so you, you can have an ecosystem where one species may be able to survive under those. Or obviously, in this case, extremophiles, we're talking about bacteria. Yeah. This, but, but even then, you know, uh, you need, you, yeah, you need to be able to, the other species would, need be, would be able to, uh, to survive under regular type conditions. Yeah, and there's actually a really cool TED Talk uh, by Natalie Cabral. Okay. Um, and basically, she talks about going up into the mountains in the Andes. Uh, where the UV index mm. during a UV storm is 43. And compare that to what when, does that mean to us? Yeah, let's, let's continue with Ottawa. Yeah. Um, they say that there's a high UV index if it's 8. Ah, okay. Uh, bad so, place to be then. Right. Up so in yeah. the, yeah. Was it an ozone hole in the ozone? Uh, I, I actually don't know. Um, it could be that or it could... Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming it's, it's like a distance thing as well because it's high in the andes okay. um and apparently this this uh, it's either a hole in the ozone but this area is supposed to give us an idea of what um what the conditions would be like on mars okay um because of of the extreme so uv 40 some odd uv mm -hmm. um and well, they I've, actually I've, at least you don't have to worry about your tan yeah for sure <laughs> uh, talking about so, the goldilocks yeah. actually uh, on Mars, you're you're far enough from the sun. I don't know about the tanning situation okay. on Mars, but I I do think there there might be uh, challenges with growing anything on Mars with respect to how much sunlight actually gets. Mm. So I'll talk about Mars in a second. Just uh, going back to the Andes. So this is where they actually trained the Mars rover because it actually also has a lot of the characteristics of the the terrain, um, and they did find bacterial life. Um, so they can find that again. It's coming back to this habit habitability thing. Right? Um, can humans live there? Not without trying, but can anything live there? Well, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, there is yeah. yeah, there is liquid water up there as well, which is like it's really cool to see that that's a possible thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so th for me, the big question is, can we live on Mars? Mm -hmm. um, so, couple facts. Uh, its soil contain can, or sorry, its soil contains water to be able to extract. So there is water on Mars. Okay. Um, we see a lot of the evidence of this in a lot of the like valleys. Um, they look like there was water going through them at Streams some point. Um, it's neither too hot nor too cold. Um, so the temperature is right. Really? What's um, the temperature? What's the average? Actually, I, I would think it's rather cold on Mars. I'm not sure it's beyond the Goldilocks conditions. Actually, it does get. Would it would it not be yeah. dependent on obviously whether it's facing the sun or not? Yes. Um, so the other thing is uh, there's enough sunlight to use solar panels, so we can get electricity on there. Um, so we're not too far away. We're still getting UV. I'll give you that temperature. So between minus fifty five Celsius and twenty degrees Celsius. That is not bad at all. So <laughs> it sounds like Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I know. Uh, as we're recording, this is minus twenty five outside. Yeah. Gravity on Mars is thirty eight percent that of Earth. Um, so you know, it, it's we would be lighter. Uh, and we don't exactly know how that would affect the body, but it's believed that that percent of gravity we can still survive under. And yeah, it has a little bit of an atmosphere, not great, but it it is there. It is protecting. And uh, the last thing is uh, the day and night rhythm is very similar to ours. Mars, uh, their day is 24 hours and 35, 39 minutes. 
So like really, it's not like, too bad. You're gaining forty minutes a day. I mean, like you get lighter, you gain forty minutes a day. I mean, why wouldn't you want to move there? Well, possibly the oxygen situation. Well, yeah, the oxygen. Whatever situation. details. Electrolysis. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I did say minus fifty five. That was the average. It's between twenty and minus one hundred and fifty three Celsius. So I take it back, but. It it becomes yeah you stay indoors yeah, um, but anyway so minus fifty five is the average up to twenty, all the way to minus one fifty three or yeah. fifty yeah. Um, so I became interested in this because uh, I wanted to find out what the Mars rover really was doing. Um, so as we know the Mars rover, uh, probably what last year, they were talking about the analysis of the Mars rover, maybe two years ago. There's been a couple of okay. There's been a couple of Mars rovers. Uh, Okay. Well, the most recent one, anyway. Or whatever data I, I can't I didn't look this up of when. Um, but like, actually landed on Mars, I think in 2013 or 14. That's two years ago. Yeah, yeah. It sounds yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, and I was just really interested in, in knowing kind of what analysis they're doing. Sure. Um, because I don't know, I do chemistry and whatever. Soil analysis. Soil analysis. So uh, I I wanted to look into the Mars rover and see what they actually had on board. Okay. Um, so on board they had three instruments: uh, a mass spectrometer. Right. Grass chromatograph, a gas chromatograph, and a tun- tunable laser spectrometer. You should explain. I'm those going to, Thank but you. I might as well list them first. Okay. Uh, so mass spectrometer actually really cool. Uh, it it basically takes a molecule, attacks it with an electron or attacks it with um, an atom, and splits it into pieces. Uh, and based on that splitting pattern and how that is split, you can actually distinguish what it is uh, and all the different chemical compositions of it. Yeah, so you're able to go, if you have a metal, um, you're able to hit an electron and excite like excite the overall metal and get the size of it um, to like atomic mass units, to like the thousands, uh, I would say, uh, which is really cool, um, as well as complex molecules. Um, so complex molecules through this method actually break down in a very, very predictable manner. Are we talking amino acids, protein? Exactly. Yeah, so like... Um, a carbon-nitrogen bond. We know the strength of a carbon-nitrogen bond, so we can know that, you know, on average, so many of those are going to break. So if you see those two parts, um, then you're able to actually see what it is. Because mm-hmm. um, you, you with a mass spec, you usually get the overall weight and then uh, percent abundance of all the different portions as well. So mass spec super useful for them because they're able to see not only what metals and what's in the soil, um, but also to see how it breaks down and identify it further. Um, a grass chromatograph is um, is basically a way of separating uh, separating the soil. So basically what it does is it takes soil, it heats it up to really, really hot and to make it into a gas form, and then sends it through uh, a chromatograph, which basically separates it by uh, different chemical characteristics. Okay. So you're able to actually see... Um, kind of base- like an oven. Yeah. They had one of those on the um, fillet, the lander that landed on the comet uh, with the Rosetta mission. Okay. And they use a similar technology to analyze composition as well. Okay. Mm. So basically, based on different char- uh, chemical characteristics, you're able to basically separate out. Um, so usually you'll see a, grass, a gas chromatograph and a mass spec um, one after the other because you separate it and then you analyze all the different parts. Okay. Uh, and the third one is a laser spectrometer. Uh, spectrometer means analysis of light. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were able to measure the abundance of various isotopes of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, um, and see kind of 
what's so they're what's just, in there. They're generally gaining a very in-depth understanding of what everything is made of on Mars. Yeah, and how many yeah relative amounts, yeah. which is a really good way of comparing from an object to another type planet or asteroid or comet, and sure. see the relative abundances um, because you know life is a, a very uh, precise thing to be able to have. Um, you know, we only know of our planet that has it, but it's because of all of these perfect conditions that we're able to continue to have life, mm-hmm. um, which makes it really interesting. Um, and yeah, and, and Mars in general, we could live there. Um, but It'd be unpleasant, I, but it we would, could. <laughs> well, I think we would probably be going to, to biodomes, to biodome type things. Very, very small pods um, and biodomes, yeah. But yeah. yeah. Cool. But yeah, that's, cool. that's pretty much all I got for Mars. Right on. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's any, anyone else want to add anything? That's a show. That's our show. That's a long show. Uh, so yeah, I want to thank Francis for Francis. coming out and, and it's as, come again. as it was last time. Uh, a great pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Being our, our token physicist. It's People, always good to have If you have ideas that you want, uh, looked over, you know, in the physics realm or, or phone in with, uh, suggestions for planet X, uh, renaming. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I would vote for something that starts with a P, you know, to replace Pluto. Oh uh, yes. No, well, we will never speak of Pluto again. <laughs> I uh, want to also give a big thank you to CHUO for letting us use your space. Mm. Um, and you can talk to us. On the Twitter. On the Twitter. Sebastian, what's the Twitter? Uh, curiosity <laughs> underscore pod. At curiosity oh, underscore at, pod. Uh, yeah. uh, our email address is curiosity.pod at gmail.com. Mm. Uh, and you can find us on iTunes. Yes. Uh, subscribe to us. Subscribe to us. And we're actually, I'm, I'm springing this on Sebastian right now. If you leave us a review, we will read it out on the show. Let's do it. Uh, because we love to see reviews. Yeah. And uh, we want, we really... We'll, we'll even give you a shout out. We'll give you a shout out. Yeah. Uh, because we want to know what you guys are thinking. Because, uh, you know, we're kind of... We sit in a dark room. We talk about science. And uh, we think it's cool. We think it's great. <laughs> and we think it's accessible. Maybe. My, my mom thinks I'm cool. Yeah, mine too. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.